Hey guys, this is Troy L. Smith with Cleveland.com and host of CLE Rocks. On Wednesday, February 9th, we hosted another one of our live podcast events at the Music Box Supper Club in Cleveland's Flats. The focus of this one was David Bowie, who played his first ever U.S. show in Cleveland in 1972. Listen as I'm joined by an all-star panel of guests reflecting on Bowie's iconic legacy. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming out. Really appreciate it. These events, this is our third one. It's been a lot of fun. It's CLE Rocks Presents, and it's the live version of a podcast I started about a year and a half ago called CLE Rocks. It's on every major podcast platform. But basically, we take a look back at the legendary people, places, and events that existed in Cleveland in sort of the golden era of rock and roll. We've done, every, we've done the usual suspects like Springsteen, Rolling Stone. So we've even done... Uh, Prince, we've did Nirvana, uh, and even Taylor Swift. We've done one on Taylor Swift, uh, just to get the kids excited, yeah? Uh, <laughs> Billy's excited. Um, okay, so the reason we're here uh, is because of David Bowie. Uh, uh, you know, as you guys know, as we'll come to find out, Bowie has this ama- had this amazing relationship with Cleveland, which included his first U.S. show here in 1972, um, and we're going to talk about that, and that's really where we're going to start after I introduce this awesome panel of guests uh, that, that have joined me. Thank you guys so much for coming. Uh, let's start off. Okay, we're going to start at the end. Uh, if you thought you were the coolest person in the room, you might have been until Billy Bass showed up. Cleveland radio legend Billy Bass, ladies and gentlemen. All right, so <laughs> Billy uh, spent time at Wixie before becoming a DJ and programmer at WMMS and WNCR. Uh, he was the reason he's here, of course, because he became one of the first DJs in the country to put David Bowie in heavy rotation on the radio in the early 70s. Uh, Billy, I'm curious, you know, so a quick story. I visited the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when I was in college, and I remember talking to a guy that worked there about famous Cleveland radio stations. He talks about WMMS, and I was working at the radio station in college, and I was the first uh, black uh, station manager that my college had. And he immediately started to, you know, talking to me about WMMS and your role there uh, is, is sort of breaking down color barriers. Talk to me about what was that time like for you when you first uh, got into Cleveland radio and really one of the first prominent you know, black DJs on Cleveland radio at the time. What was that like for you? Well, I didn't really know I was black. (laughs) (laughs) Until I got my first paycheck and then I understood, okay. (laughs) I get it now. (laughs) Well, I don't know what to tell you. I, 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 um, I really didn't think about it. It was just, you know, I was a, I was kind of a record guy. I loved records and got a chance to play records on the radio, so that was me. Well, I really, you know, the, the whole black thing didn't really occur to me that people were defining me by a color until I went to Wixie. And then on Wixie, with that great big giant audience, they, 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 people didn't know that I was black. But when they found out I was black, then, that, then it became a thing. I, you know, I got called the N-word a lot and all that. But... But that was, those were just people that just had nothing else to do. Most of the people were listening to the radio for the music that we were playing, thank God. 
Well, from a historical perspective, it's a big deal. I, I know at the time might not have been, you know, but uh, it really is inspirational, you know, reading about you and, and what you did at that time. So awesome, man. Cool. Okay, next up, rock and roll photographer. Can I call you legendary rock and roll photographer? Is that okay? Okay. <laughs> I don't think, I, is this, I don't know if this is working yet. Anastasia Pantios, thank you for coming and joining us. Okay, Anastasia, Cleveland-based writer and photographer whose work has appeared everywhere from Cleveland Scene to New York Times to Rolling Stone, Cream Magazine. We'd be here a while if I listed all the publications. Uh, also had a book, I think in 2017, Girls to the Front, 40 Years of Women in Rock, which started as a, a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame exhibit, actually. I had a question. So researching you with all this rock and roll stuff, Back in Chicago, when you were in school, you went to school for theater, though, and rock and roll sort of happened by accident, right? That is right. <laughs> uh, when I was at Case Western Reserve, which is where I got my degrees, um, I would shoot the, uh, the theater productions at school for the Observer. And the Observer at the time got uh, tickets to all the big rock shows, which were all downtown and um, public hall at the time. And nobody wanted to go because uh, at the time, Case was a very insular campus and people just wanted to review records so that they could get a free record, go back to their room, smoke some pot and study for their engineering exam. <laughs> so I got all the tickets and I would just hop the rapid and go downtown. And I honestly don't remember if that's how I got my ticket to the Bowie show in 72 or if I bought it. I found the ad uh, the other day for the show, and tickets were four fifty, which would be the would be the equivalent of about thirty dollars now. Uh, but that's how I got started shooting concerts because nobody in those days cared if you brought a camera in. And I was in the first row of the balcony at the Bowie show, and just brought my camera with me. Um, I had a two hundred millimeter lens, and I just also just found my notes on the, the settings I was using to shoot, and I was shooting um, at two-eighths wide open and one-twenty-fifth or two-fiftieth of a second, and I shot about a roll of film because that was all I could afford. Wow. Yeah, all uh, black and white. All yeah. black and white. Nobody could afford color back then. <laughs> uh, last but not least... Uh, arbiter of all things cool in Cleveland, Thomas Mulready. Thomas, wave to the crowd. Come on. Um, you know, founder of Cool Cleveland, but also, I mean, you've put on so many David Bowie events, uh, including one for Bowie at 75, or what it would have been his 75th birthday. I was going to ask you about the events, and I guess I will. So, do you remember the first Bowie event you did? When? Tell yeah, me what it we, was. Uh, uh, I'm a musician also, and uh, we cool Cleveland. We work with a lot of the universities, and I was out at Bon Wallace Music Conservatory, and you know they they have that group that does a Beatles album every year, uh, but the students don't know a lot of the background. So we did. Uh, they were doing the White Album, which is ambitious. They do it, you know, straight from beginning to end live. And I said, well, what about the story about the you know the Beatles going to India, and maybe I could put a presentation together. You know, I was in the corporate world. I know PowerPoint, you know, so I threw all this together. And they were like, that's fascinating. And then Bowie came out with uh, The Next Day, 
in 2013, which we thought was going to be his last album because it was all about death. It was kind of his sign-off, in my opinion. And I, I said, what if I just do one on, on Bowie's entire life and sort of end it with this last one? And they said they loved it, and, and the audiences started coming and coming. So we started doing them in 13, and then in 16, we had it on the calendar already to do at the Bop Stop. And we had it on for months, and, and actually the week we were going to do it, he passed on the 8th. I'm sorry, he, his birthday's the 8th, he passed on the 10th. Our show was like the 12th or something. People thought we scheduled it, I think, in 40. It was like, no, this has been on the calendar. And we had to think twice about whether to do it or not. And there was such a demand, we had to not only do it that night, we had to do it like three or four more times that month when, when we had some open slots. There was such a demand. And we've been doing it basically every, every year since 2016. I have to ask you, so this is the first event we've done uh, where the panelists have brought props. Um, tell, tell everyone about the lunchbox here that you have. Well, there's something in the lunchbox right. for later. Oh. Okay. Uh, but along the way, when you do the research, and you know, you're a journalist. I know you researched a lot for this show and for all your shows. and for all I read your, your autobiography that's yet to be written. So. Yeah, you can probably write it. I <laughs> no, think, not you know? yet. <laughs> not yet. So you end up, I end up buying every book that's ever published, and there's more and more. Uh, I've got the entire vinyl collection. It just came out with another box set. Any, anybody else here collecting all these vinyls that they were reissuing? It's getting a little ridiculous, no? I mean, there's like six big box sets of like 13 to 15 vinyls each, right? Um, and, and then when they go through his like late 80s period where it's not really even such good music, you're like, really, I have to buy this box set? But you're a completist. And so when I saw this, are you kidding me? I wasn't going to buy this this kicking lunchbox. Oh my God, I get one too. Yeah, do you? Yeah, I'm not the only one. <laughs> so, you know, obviously we're here for Bowie and, and we're going to talk about that first show uh, in the U.S. at Music Hall in 72. Here's, okay, this is kind of a loaded question. I'll start with you, Thomas, because you've, as you said, you've researched Bowie as much as anyone. What was it about him? What was so magnetic about him that we're sitting on this stage today so many years after that first show um, that captivated people so much? It's because of this guy, okay? It's because of Billy Bass, because he was playing the music, okay? Uh, both at Wixie. Um, well, he said they, they forced Wixie to play no. changes MMS. after MMS got such traction with it. Yeah, but he was he was at MMS, but they Billy, were affiliated. Can you... <laughs> <laughs> Billy, you have to set this straight for us, He Billy. started playing hunky-dory at WMMS. I'll set it straight. All right, Billy, what's, what's the verdict? Okay, so um, David Bowie was, um, was something that nobody in Cleveland or America ever heard of before until we started playing him at WMMS back in 1972, maybe 71. Was, was anybody alive then? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, let me hear you. Not, on, <laughs> okay. not only that, but I knew two of your uh, staff, David Spiro and Denny Sanders, and I remember them complaining about this. They said, Billy Bass is so crazy about David Bowie, he's insisting we play a Bowie track every hour. 
and people are going to rebel. This is overkill. I remember them bitching about this. But little did they know. Well, <laughs> yeah, they didn't know you were a genius and a seer. You know? No, no. What it was was we, the WMMS at the complain. time. We had a uh, we had a pretty. We had a very interesting audience. I'd like to say we had the best audience in the world, but it was very small. And we, had, we loved that audience because they were what, what I would call the hippest people in Cleveland. They were the cool people. They were the trendsetters. They were like this guy right here. They were just cool-looking people, and they were doing cool things, and they loved our station. So I had to play to them and make sure that we were playing the songs that they would like. And... Um, after a while, <laughs> the sound of San Francisco during the hippie days, the, hey, we, we kind of burn out. We had been playing it and playing it and playing it, playing it. And then the Rolling Stones had that thing at uh, Altamont, and that kind of changed things. And we were in a position where we had to find something new to play, something new that our audience that we loved, that we didn't want to disappoint, something that they would appreciate. And my friend, Denny Sanders, who she just mentioned, introduced the album Hunky Dory to me. And I heard the record, and I said, this is it. This is going to take us to the next level. we got to get on this right away. This is the best album out, no matter what. No, it, it, but, but, and then uh, they said, but nobody knows it. We're going to get killed playing that record. I said, no, we're not. They're gonna, people are going to really like this record. So we, we played it, and we played it, and we played it, and she'll tell you, I played it to death. All the time. <laughs> and made everybody else do it, too. But, but what got me was there were, see, I, I, I'm, by now, I'm 30 years old. I'm getting a little old for this rock and roll stuff. <laughs> and then I heard David Bowie say, look out now, we're all getting a little older. And that record, that song, Changes, spoke to me directly. I said, oh, my goodness. I have to change. I got to do something different. I have to move on, and I have to take my audience with me. So we we played Hunky Dory much to the dismay of uh, Denny Sanders. We kept playing it and playing it and playing it. And then the pressure was on because now that we played it so much, the next album had to be great or we would look ridiculous. And, he, and Denny was right about that. So Ziggy Stardust came out. Now who looks ridiculous, Denny Sanders? <laughs> and boy, did we play the heck out of that record. So we were, I mean, we just went crazy. And, and that was, if, if you don't mind me making a little side note, the reason why we needed that record was because rock and roll was changing right underneath us, and we didn't want to be a part of it. It was that Southern rock. We played, we played the Almond Brothers. We liked the Almond Brothers. We liked ZZ Top. But when it got to that flag-waving stuff that they were doing, you know, the Confederate flag and all that weirdness, we, we were just not going to go there because we knew our audience wasn't going to like that. They were going to get upset and wonder why we were doing it. So I, had, I really needed something desperately to, to fill the void. And so the David Bowie record, particularly... Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust brought us, we could play more Velvet Underground now, we could play more Lou Reed now, we could play T-Rex now, we could play a whole bunch of stuff that we could never play before. Mata and the audience grew, yeah, yeah. Mata Hoople, and the audience just grew with it. 
And then at 72, I turned it over to Denny Sanders and, and yeah. John Gorman. They took it from there. And I think people underestimate um, what a sea change this was in Cleveland. I mean, obviously, you know, Cleveland broke David Bowie, the show uh, at Music Hall in September of 72. It was an instant sellout to the point where two months later he came back uh, around Thanksgiving and did two sold-out shows at Public Hall. Music Hall holds 3,000, Public Hall holds 10,000. So he went from a 3,000-seat show to selling 20,000 tickets. And Billy's right about how music had sort of evolved from you know the psychedelic thing, which is very colorful and all that, into this you know, dressed down, all my brothers. Um, I was just telling um, Troy how I remembered a quote from Dwayne Almond where he said, a guy don't come to my band to show off his fancy duds he come to pick. And for some reason, that whole ethic had just worn out on Cleveland. And when Bowie happened like that in Cleveland, thanks to this guy, it just a whole thing exploded, and you started to see all the local bar bands dressing up in satin jeans and velvet jackets and sequin tube tops, and you know, just playing the Bowie and playing, you know, Sweet and Slade and T Rex. And T Rex, I believe, played Music Hall or Allen Theater that same month. Um, just all these kind of glittery theatrical bands, which nobody else was playing. If a bar band came here from Rochester, New York, everything they were playing was dated to a Cleveland audience. And believe me, that happened at the Agora. At one point, one of the booking agents tried to do that. But in 70, even 73, 74, 75, all of the bands here were all glitter and sequins and satin and velvet and playing all these, you know, theatrical glitter rock songs, lots of English stuff, like Mop the Hoople you mentioned. Um, so it started a whole trend here in Cleveland, there thanks was to a, you, and you were on your way. You were gone. There was Be an, sorry, I said, there was another element, too, along with, you know, WMS Break and Bowie. As you know, Thomas, Cleveland had a huge fan club for David Bowie here that, uh, I think it was Brian Sands, had started, uh, and he it got so big that he even received a call from Bowie, right? He did, yeah. He he picked up on him even before Billy Bass did, I think, because he, he picked up on him uh, with Space Oddity in 69. And he started the first international David Bowie fan club right here in Cleveland. Wow. Like maybe 50 followers, you know, it was all paper mailing lists. Um, but by the time, you know, word got around, and David Bowie at one point picked up the phone and made a transatlantic call to Brian Sands. And his mother was like, Brian, this guy David <laughs> Bowie is calling from England. And he couldn't believe it. And, and, and David Bowie was like, what? A, where is Cleveland? You know, first of all, and what is going on there that, you know, you're fans? And he said, well, I love this music. It's great music, you know. So I do think now... Whether or not this is true, I don't know how we'd validate it. You might have some more information, Billy. But for Bowie to you remember that whole movement of British bands coming to the U.S. was the pivotal moment in their careers. Most of them did not cross over. And, you know, when the Beatles did, it was triumphant, but there were so many bands that didn't. And you remember, they waited, 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 till they, they, were, they were huge in England. They'd still come over here and flop. 
So when Bowie came, I think he wanted to make sure that he got a warm welcome and he came to the right place. Brian was part of it. I, I actually have a photo that we can pull up of him um, sitting after the show with David Bowie, um, probably at Swingo's um, in the after party. And you got to see the look on his face because David is basically staring at him like, and they asked him, and he sat right next to Tony DeFries in the concert. They got him a ticket right next to Bowie's manager. And Brian Sands, a musician himself, and he was taking notes on the show that he gave to, to his manager and to David himself about, okay, when the lights come on here and you make that transition here. And, and Bowie is like, <laughs> you can see this look on his face. He's staring at Brian Sands. Can you all Swingos. see this? He's staring at Brian Sands, like, tell me more. What did I do? How, you know, what do you think? And he was giving David Bowie advice. Wow. Let me see that. Yeah. This is um, after the show at Swingo's. At Hollanden House. Or Hollanden House. Thank you. So now the combination of knowing that WMMS was playing, and we have another clip, if we have time, of um, Tony Zanetta, who was the road manager, saying, and this is on the Be uh, Beside Bowie documentary. Have you all seen that on Mick Ronson? It's called Beside Bowie. It's great. But the road manager it was saying, you know, there was this DJ in Cleveland. That's as, that's as far as he gets with it. But he's obviously referring to you. And that's why they started in Cleveland. Well, the other reason why they started in Cleveland is because Cle nobody, there's all big radio stations across the country uh, in Los Angeles, New York, in Chicago, really big uh, radio stations. Metro Media owned them all. And you had to be on those radio stations to sell records. But Cleveland had WMMS, and we, we were playing David Bowie a lot. And David Bowie was not only being heard in Cleveland, but the record was selling like gangbusters. So, to the, so when Tony DeFries and the Bowie group came to Cleveland, their record had already sold like 25,000, 30,000 records just here in Cleveland alone. And, the, and the, what I love about Cleveland, and I've loved this since I was a kid, are the DJs here. You know, we are we 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 gave birth to Alan Freed as the Moon Dog, and Alan Freed, yeah, yeah, really, <laughs> Alan Freed and a guy out of um, um, I think it was Tennessee, Nashville, Tennessee, called John R. You guys are way too young, but anyway, John R. and Alan Freed would play this what they called race music at the time, and again, Cleveland because Alan Freed, the Moon Dog, was right here in Cleveland. Cleveland was breaking records all over the country. So we kind of, those of us at WMMS kind of felt that way. Even the, even the program director, Wixie, felt that way. Wixie was breaking records all over the country. So Cleveland really deserves to be the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because it really all, a lot of stuff broke out of here that you probably never would have heard of before if it wasn't for people like Bill Randall. Anybody remember that name? Okay, Bill Randall. I, you know, most people heard from the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. I heard about the Beatles from Bill Randall. He was playing the Beatles on uh, WERE. So that, that, that was, uh, that's him. The DJs here, uh, particularly Alan Freed, kind of put Cleveland on the map. And what's, I, what's interesting, too, is we talk about, Anastasia, you said that, that 
show sold out and Bowie was so big here in Cleveland, he wasn't at that point big really anywhere else because, you know, if you read about that tour, they had to cancel some shows, I think. Yeah, nowhere. Because, yeah, it's yeah. The, I think they said, at times, I think it was uh, St. Louis wasn't a Bowie town, yeah. <laughs> they down said. But when he came back, because he, he played a show in Santa Monica that, that was, I think, radio yeah, broadcast, good. became a bootleg. Right. Um, September, when he, later. Yeah, when he came back in November, though, Anastasia Ray, he was, he was made at that point, or, or a, a, you know, the breakthrough had been, you know, cemented, All the radio right? stations across the country used to follow us, and there, there was this one, uh, uh, what it, they call a tip sheet. It was called Walrus. And Walrus, we reported to Walrus, and all the radio stations, you know, would listen, wonder what we were doing, and they would look at our list. And all the stations put in their top 20. And so when Ziggy Stardust came out, we listed Ziggy Stardust as number one, number two, number three, number four, <laughs> all the way down the line. And then so the, the KMETs of the world, the Los Angeles, LA, they, they started to follow suit. And KMET in Los Angeles was first to jump on it, and that's why he did so well in Santa Monica. I want to talk about the show, the actual show, uh, which you shot, Anastasia. But I also want to say, I, I was doing some research, and it, it struck me uh, sort of a sign of the times, obviously. The headline to preview the show from the Cleveland Press was, New Rock Singer, Bowie or Girl. <laughs> Uh, the went on to say he is not the first male singer to appear on stage in feminine garb, but his thing is not the violent anti-sexual sham of Alice Cooper. So that was their way of, this was not Jane Scott. Jane Scott knew her shit and she had a really good review wrote, we could get to. That? Oh boy. Sipple, maybe? John Sipple. John Sipple, yeah. Wrote that as, as the preview for Bowie being here. Yeah, he was like their second or third string reviewer <laughs> after Bruno well, Bornino and with Harriet that. Peters. Yeah. But it's the, like you mentioned, all how they've dressed, and that was the first thing. Um, and I think the photographs, which were so important that you did, Anastasia, that's what sort of, you know, the album covers were so important. The visual element was becoming, you know, almost more important. It was just, it was pre-MTV when it just became the only thing that was important, you know, was the visual element. But there was a lot more to Bowie when you ask why he caught on here. And as Billy was saying, you know, there's, there's the Woodstock sort of hippie uh, era, and th what Bowie says, there's a quote where he says, you know, we were inventing the 21st century in 1971. Right. And what they did, the way they did it, was a very postmodern way of doing it, which is a fancy word to say they, they looked back and they took a rock and roll. When you listen to uh, what, what Mick Ronson was doing on that guitar in the Ziggy Stardust uh, album, you know, they, they, that was pre-punk, right? But it was also post-Elvis, you know, it was that hard-edged late 50s rock and roll, which was just straight-up rockabilly rock and roll, updated with, with lipstick. Well, you could also John see that in say. their looks, the two pictures they just gave Billy, and he did a costume change. He had the glitter space suit, and then he had the blue jeans. Blue the jeans, kind of rolled up, dungarees look. So he was basically, through those, those looks... Looking both to the past, to and the, the past future. and the future, like the yeah. spaceman in the future, but also there was this. You know, when you when you look at Shauna Na was one of the first. They call it glam rock bands at Woodstock, because of the way they dressed, because of their references to late fifties rock and roll and presaging punk. You know, so I don't want to put it all on the costuming and the look. It's easy, or or even the gay sensibility. 
and the openness to that that Bowie brought, which all of that was important, and all of that had influences, especially, I think, on the male uh, laddish culture that was forming around rock and roll at the time, which was really uh, starting to calcify. Well, it's really... Uh, the one thing I wanted to bring up was uh, sometime during that year, I was having a conversation with Billy, and we are talking about where music was going to go, and Billy said to me, the next big thing, trend in music is going to be to be gay. You said that to me. And I, when you look at it in the context of the time, he wasn't entirely wrong. I mean, he didn't mean people were all going to become gay, but you know, you had Bowie at that point who was playing around with different sexual and gender identities, and so were a lot of these other acts that followed in his path, which at that point was, I think, more acceptable among British acts and American acts. You know, all the American acts were doing southern bands. And one thing that you saw at shows back then, and you saw this at the Bowie show, at T-Rex, Mop the Hoople, uh, Roxy Music, even Bette Midler was part of this, is you would walk around the lobby at the Allen Theater or Music Hall, which were two of the most used venues at the time, and you would see the audience was all dressed up and acting out like they were, you know, in a gay bar or a drag show, you know, with feather boas and glitter in their hair. And people felt very free to express themselves like that at a time when that was really, really not mainstream at all. And I don't know, part of it may have been that just at that point, Cleveland was just so down and out that just kind of anything you did was underground. So you weren't that worried about, you know, people out in Parma or Solon, you know, getting on you because there was no, absolutely no back and forth. In fact, I still remember uh, a friend of mine telling me, and this was probably the early, late 70s, that his brother-in-law hadn't been to downtown Cleveland in 10 years because he said, what is there outside Parma that I ever need to see? So there was that real separation, but I think that gave the people who wanted uh, to explore alternative identities, I think that gave them room to do so. Yeah, the subculture of, of the not just the gay, but the subculture of being different and Bowie being a cult figure, I think was key to his popularity. Because remember, he really didn't cross over into the mainstream in America. His first number one was the song Young Americans. He didn't really start making money and selling records until Let's Dance in 83. So when we look back to, to, to Ziggy Stardust and romanticize it, he was a cult figure. That was his appeal, though. We could go to these concerts and see everyone else who was part of our little underground circle. you know. And once a, a star like that rises to mainstream popularity, usually the underground moves on, and they're like not interested anymore. Right. And of course, Bowie had that, that dark period in the 80s where he, he lost an audience, he lost his sound. But the idea that it was a cult was so important to I us. I can actually speak to that a little bit. He did lose his audience. He did lose his sound. And, and he recovered it when he did Heroes. And if you think about Heroes, that's that, you know, one chord, Lou Reed, almost like Lou Reed's heroine, but it's Heroes. Mm -hmm. And that's, that, that was, that was uh, David Bowie's root. 
I mean, he he was he was uh, a Lou. He was influenced more by Lou Reed and New York and what was going on in that New York music scene than he was in the English scene. And Brian Eno. And right, and Brian Eno. And so it. Oh, I'm sorry. Can't mess with her art here. Sorry about that. Careful with the photos. But to that, to the gay thing. That that was really important because Cleveland was Cleveland was big. We didn't give a crap. We just we loved the music. We played the records. That was it. You know, it was no big deal. But MMS did have a uh, a gay liberation show on, uh, which was kind of unique in Cleveland back in 1972. That was so weird, and 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 to do it, you know, we were we were very much entertainers. I think, and instead of just having a straight news show, we we I can't use the word, but we 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 picked the most gay guy we could find <laughs> to, to do the news and it was just funny as hell so we loved that and so that, can you imagine that kind of show on on the radio in 1972 that was amazing but at any rate just one more story so so Bowie is big in Cleveland he's selling records like crazy selling tickets like crazy he's huge at Cleveland RCA hired me I left Cleveland in 72 I went to New York and they hired me to go to Dallas, Texas, and do the same thing in Dallas, Texas, that I did in Cleveland. <laughs> you get it? I don't even have to go any further, right? You know what I'm going to Oh, my you know God. Where this is going. <laughs> you know, it's, I, I told a guy at the radio station, I said, dude, why don't you, you got to play this record. This is changes. Everybody in the world loves this song. This is a great song. Everybody can relate to this song. He said, if I play that song, I'll, I'll lose my job. So that was, okay, you don't want to lose your job. I get it. <laughs> I, can't, I can't ask you to play the song anymore. But uh, uh, so we threw a big party. And this, this goes to what she said. We, you know, RCA back then had plenty of money. They could do, they gave me, you know, just do whatever you got to do. And I did the same thing in Dallas that I did in Cleveland, except I didn't have a radio station. But I went to Dallas, found out who, who the, the hip people were in, in Dallas, Texas. And there was a lot of people in Dallas that didn't want to be cowboys. They, wanted to, they thought they were L.A., really. So I got in touch with all of those people, rented a, uh, a venue, a bar. It was a bar like this, pretty much like this. But this is back in 73 now. So I had TVs all over, you know, big, big screen TVs, and had these people come in. And this was when David Bowie was doing um, Midnight Special. You remember that show, Midnight Special? So it, David was doing the whole show. It was all David Bowie. So this party was built around this show with all the TV screens, and nobody had ever seen that in Dallas. And the next thing you know, the, the Dallas Morning Herald said, and again, I can't use the word, but there was this party for this gay guy, and <laughs> and all the cool people in Dallas was there, and then they they showed pictures and everything. And the next thing you know, David Bowie is a big deal in Dallas, Texas. It was so cool, but but the guy wouldn't play it. <laughs> he, he absolutely wouldn't play it because he didn't want to lose his job. I want to. I want to ask, Anastasia, you shot the show in 72, and then we'll talk about you, you shot Bowie multiple times after that. I'm curious, first show in the U.S., what do you remember about him as a performer at that 72 concert at Music Hall? Well, I remember that um, 
you know, like I said, I was sitting in the first row of the balcony with my little camera, and I just remember that compared to a lot of the shows that I was seeing at that point, it had a really um, thoughtfully theatrical presence. I mean, I had seen bands that had that kind of rock and roll theatricality. I mean, among the people that had come to public hall, the larger hall, um, were bands like The Who and Led Zeppelin. Um, I didn't see Genesis at that point. I don't remember them coming here. But um, but they were real, you know, bashy rock and roll. All their theatricality was all in this just energy that they put out. And with Bowie, it was a lot more um, restrained and directed. You, you had a, a sense of intelligence behind it, that there were movements and I, that were emphasizing ideas in a really coherent kind of way that wasn't just, you know, now I'm going to smash one of the guitars on my pile of SGs like, you know, Pete Townsend did, you know, or, you know, I'm going to, you know, put my uh, crotch out there for you to look at like Robert Plant did. So <laughs> it was a very different thing. And I have the review here that Jane Scott did of the show where she said, David Bowie concert is clockwork. She said, the lights went out, only flickering sparks were seen, then a drum rolled. And then deep strains of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony filled music hall last night. Shades of Clockwork Orange in Cleveland? This was the David Bowie concert, one of the punchiest acts in show business today. Electricity seemed to spark the audience as David Bowie scooted on stage splendid in a black and gold jumpsuit and bright orange boots. That's from the picture we showed you. But then, what else would you expect with basic orange hair? The music was fast, tight, and strong, and probably had more excitement than any English group since the Rolling Stones. Bowie stood with his legs apart playing guitar and singing his legendary song, Lady Stardust. He looked like a young Catherine Hepburn, tall and imperially slim. His voice ranged from medium notes to falsetto, but always kept that strong, pulsating beat. Bowie said earlier in a news conference that Lady Stardust or Ziggy or Lady Stardust or Ziggy Stardust did not refer to any known pop singer, but was a conglomerate of many. This was Bowie's first appearance in the United States, a real coup for for Cleveland station WMMS, which co-sponsored the concert with Belkin Productions, is considered to be the first one to play his album Hunky Dory. A big round of applause for Jane Scott, ladies and gentlemen. Absolutely. And here is that article by John Sippel. This was the preview, and Anastasia just read the John review. John Sippel was not as hip as James Scott. No. <laughs> Who the hell is John Sippel anyway? What I he was the third string yeah. Cleveland Press yeah. writer. Third, third string. He's not here to defend no. himself. Well, no, no. No, Bruno, Bruno Bornino was like uh, the James Scott of the Cleveland Press, except no. he wasn't really as hip as she was. And then he, they had Harriet Peters, who was writing like a What's Happening type column. And then they had John Sippel. Just one thing. That concert that you just talked about, when it opened with that clockwork orange, the audience was not only mesmerized, they were scared to death. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't know what in the hell was going on. And look how weird this is. This is the preview of the show. That, this was in September the paper the day of September 22nd, 1972. 
and look at the ad that just serendipitously happens to be this display ad for the film. What is it? Stanley Kubrick's Clockwork Orange. Oh, yeah, there you go. Yeah. I mean, you couldn't have paid that no, to happen, right? right? That's right. And I didn't read you the last paragraph here. It says, police escorted three suspected pot users from the hall <laughs> and, and chased away ten youths who had climbed up the side of the building trying to get in. So, Anastasia, that was you? <laughs> Billy, was there any interaction uh, between Bowie and WMMS prior to the show in terms of promotion or anything? None whatsoever. No, we we didn't. We were not into the act as much as we were into the music. So we didn't. We, you know, Tony DeFreeze, You know, he had he was the manager and he had um, requirements, and he wanted things done his way. And, and we said, you know what, take that shit someplace else. We're, we're not interested. We do have a mint copy of an unused, unripped ticket from that very first show. So someone kept it, and it's out there. And not only this, it's a copy of the contract, oh, wow. William Morris Agency, uh, between Main Man Limited, which was David Bowie's management company, and Belkin Productions for one show of approximately one hour in duration, commencing at 8 p.m., September 22nd, 1972. Is that correct? Wow. Yeah. Just to have the, you know, the actual document yeah. there typed up. How much up. did he get paid? What did it say? It, you know what? It's, it's only the top half of it, and I think <laughs> the price is at the bottom half. I think they did that by design. <laughs> $4. I thought you were going to say that was on eBay. I was going to ask you if you were currently bidding on buying a ticket. I already got it. You already got it. <laughs> I want to talk about, uh, obviously, Bowie he played more than a dozen shows in, in Cleveland in his career. Um, before we get that, you know, I think the last line in that review, and I could be wrong, this could be from something else, but just to show you how on the ball Jane Scott was, she said, I think it's the last line, we reporters sensed that a star was born that night. So the far cry from what the Cleveland press <laughs> had said preview. Maybe they, maybe Sipple had a different, you know, uh, story after the show was over. Sipple was not him. <laughs> All right, enough with simple. I, I want to jump ahead. I think <laughs> I think the next time Bowie came here, and, and Thomas, this I think is the first time you saw Bowie in '74 for the Diamond Dogs tour. Give me a little bit about how, when you got into Bowie uh, and what age you were, because that wound up being your first show instead of the music hall one. Yeah, so there's always this kind of delayed reaction when something hits big. Again. Um, you know, when Ziggy Stardust hit, all of a sudden you, you guys started playing, uh, you know, Hunky Dory again. You start playing Space Oddity again. And it really wasn't, you know, then the next record was actually sold much bigger. You know, Aladdin Sane sold much more. And then Diamond Dogs was like a huge record compared to Ziggy Stardust. And so when that came out, and the, and the single Rebel Rebel. So that was the one that he toured next. And at this point, Bowie's theatricality had... He, he had the budget, finally, to go to a guy who designed sets for the Metropolitan Opera and spend what would today's dollars be about a half a million dollars on a set that included uh, a working bridge that went up and down. There was an arm that came out over the audience that he'd sit in that would go up and down, and he'd sing into a microphone for the song Space Oddity, which often broke, and he would have to climb back along this, like, hydraulic arm half the time. Um, it had a... a, a, a a sort of diamond that opened up and he would sing the, the song Time, he would come out of it. It almost sounds like 
Spinal Tap, you know, where, but, because it didn't always work. But um, That was pretty much typical for that era when people tried those ambitious things. It, this was the most ambitious, you know, and uh, costly. And we were fortunate to see it in the United States because he got halfway through this tour, by the way, and he got to Philadelphia and he was so into funk that he ditched the entire set and he, he, he started going in the studio in Philadelphia and started recording Young Americans. And so the rest of the country didn't get to see the set and they never saw it in, anywhere in England. And they're still pissed about it today. But we saw it. We, and that was my it. first experience. Now, I was disappointed because... He had already replaced the spiders from Mars. You know, he had made that that final speech at the Hammersmith. You know, in in '73, it was July 3rd, where he said, "Now is this the last show of the tour? It's the last show we'll ever do." And that was the first Woody Woodmansy, the drummer, heard of it. We interviewed him, and all of a sudden, he never played with Bowie again after that night. Okay, and he ditched his band, which we loved, which was this proto-punk rock and roll that guitar of Mick Ronson's. And so when we went to see him, he had the greatest studio music. He had David Sanborn out there on sax before he put out his first record. He had Luther Vandross singing backgrounds. He had this killing, but it wasn't this four-piece rock and roll punk stuff. And in fact, he had them behind a scrim in the corner while he's out prancing around with the dogs on leashes, tying him up. And if you've seen any of the video for this and doing all this theatrical stuff. And we were like, where's the fucking band? Can I say fucking on, on the yeah, podcast? Yeah, you're good. You're good. Where's the fucking band? It was like, but where are they? I was like, I'm waiting for something that wasn't going to happen. You know, in retrospect, I'm so glad I saw it. <laughs> it was it was it was it blew me away. How old were you at the time? Well, you don't, I don't want to date you. 15 or something like that. You How know? many times? I've always wondered, you know, after seeing all this, the stuff you've done for Bowie over the years, the presentations, the shows. Yeah. How many times did you see him? Probably five, six, seven times. I don't know exactly. You know, I know we, we went out of town to see him, went to Detroit to see him um, with Blue Man Group. Uh, that was kind of a cool show. Some, uh, on, on, you know, we saw him at Blossom, which is another classic Cleveland concert. I hope we talk about it. Mm -hmm. With Nine Inch Nails yep. and Prick opening, yeah. Kevin McMahon, who was Trent Reznor's yeah, mentor. 1995, yeah, 1995 at Blossom Music Center. Yeah. Legendary, and the tour where, where basically Bowie was, no one knew who he was by 1995, and yeah. Trent Reznor was at the top of his game. And they came out and said, you know, Bowie's like, there's no way, no one's going to stay for my music <laughs> if you don't close the show, and Trent said, there's no way that uh, you're playing before me. <laughs> you're David Bowie. So they did this transition. They, yeah. you know, they, he never left the stage, right. because the minute they would have shut off after Nine Inch Nails, the audience literally would have left. So instead, Bowie came, one member of Bowie's band came out, they did a, a Nine Inch Nails song, and one member of Nine Inch Nails left, and then they, they traded four or five songs, they kind of melded together, and then eventually Nine Inch Nails was off the stage, and Bowie's band was on the stage. Bowie revamped his entire set, didn't play any of his big hits. He, he, he was doing all his new material, but that was a legend, that was a legend Cleveland show. To go from Kevin McMahon and Prick to Trent Reznor and Nine Inch Nails to David Bowie at Blossom was like, holy <laughs> fuck. <laughs> <laughs> We'll, we'll get to we'll get to all the shows. I wanted to ask Billy because I know you had left uh, radio and you, but you're still in the record industry and you're you're 
your connection to Bowie didn't end there because you went on to manage his band, right? Him. Him. Okay, band. you were part yeah. of Bowie's management team. Yes, I didn't want right. to jump that. So yeah, the, talk Bu- about that. the Bewley brothers took over from DeFreeze when, uh, when Bowie. That period that, we're, that was just talked about, that's a period where I couldn't stand David Bowie. That music was <laughs> awful. Yeah, I mean, just from, from uh, Ziggy Stardust to even Aladdin Sane, I was like, what the heck? But Rebel Rebel, I liked it because it was Top 40, and I liked Top 40. So that was a good song. But I, I really didn't like him. And, uh, the music was crappy. The show was just ridiculous. So I, I, I kind of tuned him out. But he, heard, he knew about me from Cleveland. So when um, uh, he was out with Luther... And he, and, and he met Nile, Niles Rogers, and they started doing a groove thing that ended up to be Young Americans. And for Young Americans, he called me up and asked me to join his management team. So that was really fun, and we had a big, big hit with that, with that record. And then after Young Americans is when I really got back into Bowie again, because first of all, I liked that record a lot. But then when he did, I'm waiting for the man. Did you guys ever hear Bowie do Waiting for the Man? He did it at all his shows. Yeah, again, going back to his roots, to, the, to that Lou Reed, New York, three-chord rock uh, uh, experience, then, then he was the man for me again. I was so happy. I was so happy to say I love David Bowie again. You know, <laughs> it, was, it was great. And then Bowie, you know, I think he played here in 76, a public auditorium, um, one of those dates. It was back-to-back nights. One of those dates, another big bootleg uh, among Bowie fans. And then in 77, and jump in, guys, if you went to these shows or you know more than I do about these shows, which you probably do. 77, he tours with Iggy Pop, right. mm-hmm. which, yeah, and that became a Thomas Wright, a live, uh, it was a live broadcast, and then that became a bootleg as yep. well. Yep. That was a very important uh, moment for, for Bowie, really. The, the records that he produced with Iggy Pop uh, brought him back in touch with who he was because he almost killed himself there after Young Americans, moved to L.A., was doing so much cocaine with Glenn Hughes, the bass player from Deep Purple, uh, that he says, you know, I know it was this album was recorded, Station to Station was recorded in L.A. because they told me it was. You know, he had no re- recollection of this, and he was going to kill himself from drugs. But he, he went and took uh, Iggy Pop out of rehab because everybody was showing up in rehab, visiting Iggy Pop, bringing him drugs, you know, which is what your good friends do. Uh, he said, let's go somewhere and let's kick the drugs. So they picked the heroin capital of the world, Berlin, and they said, let's move to Berlin. And this crazy plan worked. Um, but it was, it was really Iggy Pop. And when he toured with Iggy Pop behind uh, him, he made it a point, and Anastasia was saying that she couldn't even get tickets. They weren't letting, they weren't giving any passes. They weren't letting you take photos because everybody would have been right up David Bowie's butt. You know, they would have been ignoring Iggy. And he played the sideman role that he had never played from day one because even his very first bands, he was always the, the front man. And he just played keyboards, but he co-wrote the songs with Iggy Pop. China Girl was one that came out of that period that Bowie had a much bigger hit with, but he co-wrote a lot of those songs, played the keyboards, and they did the clubs. They did the Agora. And I remember having opportunity to go, and I so regret it, because I'm like, A, I don't really know who Iggy Pop is at this point, you know? Um, And why would I want to go see Bowie just play keyboards over in the corner? I already had that bad experience with him putting the band in the corner (laughs) for Diamond Dogs. 
you know? So I missed it. So good. Blondie open. Blondie open. Yeah. So this is the show they got away now, right? Yeah. For me, it is. For me, it <laughs> is. I just realized I thought I had only seen Bowie six times, but I, if you count that show, I've seen him seven times. Well, I too, I want to get to. If someone mentioned the front row, I know Tom's looking up something here, but uh, the next show you shot, Anastasia, I believe, was '83 at Richfield Coliseum, which was the mecca, you know, concerts in Ohio and the Midwest at that time. What was it like shooting him again? Like, you know, how was it? That show was, I mean, if you thought he was theatrical before, that show was over the top. I mean, it had cast members, it had props, it had set pieces. Sound and vision tour. Um, yeah. I think that, no, I think that was the Serious Moonlight tour. Serious Moonlight? Yeah. yeah. We'll get to Sound and Vision, too, because I think Anastasia shot Sound yeah, and Vision as well. I've got some pictures here. Yeah. You can see... There's a bootleg of that show, too, that, I mean, if you yeah. listen to it, I think it was a tape recording in the audience, and they have to switch the tape, like, halfway through, and you can hear the guy say he's switching the tape, the version that I heard. Yeah, I hear this one. He sounds sitting out. in the director's on fire chair. In the, looking it's at amazing. It's amazing. Looking at the skull. You know, here he is uh, with another cast member. Here he is with a giant, oversized globe. See? This one. The <laughs> this was the period where he not the his not hair. the one in the back, the one in the front, the one he, in the back. He, he dressed in a suit, you know, a tux. He bleached his hair, and he actually was quoted in Rolling Stone. You remember back in the day in '72, he he let slip that I'm gay. Always have been. This was Melody Maker in England, and you know you would you would do this back then. Remember, I mean, this is how the Beatles got in trouble. They let these little quotes slip out, and sometimes they got out of control. And, and they were the bigger Beatles than Jesus. Bigger than like, Jesus yeah. quote ended up <laughs> causing them all kinds of trouble. So Bowie slips out this thing, I'm gay, in 72, and it worked wonderfully for him. He even admits it was the smartest movie ever made. Well, he comes out now in 83 with this, this tour, and he's appealing now to a mainstream audience in the 80s. And, and he comes out in big quote in... in uh, Rolling Stone, where he says, "I'm not really gay," you know, that was just me fooling around, you know. And he, and so for people who were sort of hanging on his importance to the gay liberation, to gay awareness, which he was, you know, there, there's there's books on this. One one I have is called "David Bowie Made Me Gay," you know. I mean, <laughs> they take it very seriously because he was so out and comfortable with it. And then for him to come and sort of betray the cause here um, was, it, it was just the price he had to pay. He really needed the money. He was still paying off Tony DeFreeze from a deal that he made in 1970, and he stopped working with him. What year would you say, 72, 73? No, longer, 74, 74, but still by 83, he was still paying Bowie off. In fact, that's why he floated the Bowie bonds, and I think that was 86 because he had to raise something like $30 million at that point to finally pay Tony DeFree and, and own his masters, which is why he continues to license the release of his music. Every time, every five years or so, he's smart, or Iman is smart now, um, and they license and relicense to a new record company, and they let him do whatever they want, sell whatever you want, box set it up, do whatever, and you know, he still owns his masters because he, he had to pay for them. I wanted to, Billy, I wanted to bring you back in because before I get to the Sound and Vision tour, 
as Thomas mentioned, Luther Vandross singing a uh, backup on Young Americans, and then Bowie takes him on the road for like the first time. I think Luther had been on the road in his career. You there was there's connection there again because you managed you went on to manage Luther Vandross for a short time in the 90s, right? And it was because of that connection. Wow. Luther uh, David told Luther about me, wow. and there you go. That was good. But back, back to Bowie just for a second. Hard to be gay when you're married to Iman, right? That, 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 how can you justify that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I guess all those rockers uh, during that period, that 73, 74 period, uh, Mick Jagger and Bowie. Remember when Mick Jagger and Bowie did that song together? Looking so silly together. Remember that? Terrible. Yeah, that was awful. It was a low point. Yeah, a real low point. <laughs> But yeah, Luther Luther 80s. sang background on uh, Young Americans, and he arranged the background. He arranged all those uh, all those vocals on on the Young it, Americans it was, album. It was even more than that, you know, because he Luther understood how when you hear that song Young Americans, the background vocals lead the song. They are the hook. They are the chorus. Right. It's not like you've got a lead singer and the backgrounds are following it. It's led with this background. And that was what Luther brought to it. Bowie didn't have a sense of that. He, he, he felt it, he knew it, um, but he couldn't have done that. He turned it over, like he always did with all his musicians, whether it was Mick Ronson, you know, uh, whether it was working with Brian Eno. Throughout his career, he would let them run with it and do whatever they wanted. Um, and he let Luther Vandross And totally he had Nile Rodgers, too, to do the production, yeah. so... There yeah, was a the sense too. Sure. I remember growing up, you know, my dad, my dad's black, my mom's white, but my dad didn't get into Bowie until then because, you know, Bowie was welcome on Soul Train and on these shows. And he didn't it wasn't arranged like Luther see Luther knew someone that got him hooked up with Bowie. Bowie overheard Luther singing and invited him to join the backup, you know, sing on that. And so Bowie had a sensibility that defied, you know, even his core demographic, you know, and brought in people of all races, you know, and ages. It was and Carlos. That's what I, sorry, that's yeah. what I loved about Luther as he developed. He just kept doing, he, he became, uh, not Luther, I'm sorry, Bowie. He became the Bowie that I really appreciated in the early days. He kept changing and kept changing. And, you know, he was R&B, he was punk, he was pop he was all that stuff and I love that about him I think it was Carlos Alomar was his guitarist uh, and music director after the spiders from Mars and he got hooked up with him he was a studio musician who uh, headed up the house band at the Apollo and he was a studio musician who played in the studio when Bowie was producing Lulu doing a version of the man who sold the world so you know Bowie gave his songs to people like Mata Hoople and, and other bands. And he was thought of himself as a songwriter, really. And, and in the early days, if he hadn't broken, he would have been a songwriter. But it was through this connection that he then met Luther and some of the others that he ended up working with. So he had kind of an inside track on that. I want to jump ahead to the Sound and Vision tour, which was you know obviously another legendary show. Anastasia, you shot that, but not only did you shoot that, because that's the show where Bono came out on stage, uh, performed the cover of Gloria with Bowie, but you wound up backstage and shot a photo of them. Tell me how that came about. Well, I wasn't really planning to go to the show at all, because <laughs> um, in 19, um, late 1989, early 1990, I made the biggest mistake of my life. I was burned out on writing and photography and bands were getting more and more restrictive. So I decided to manage a band. Don't ever do this, please. Um, 
It's like babysitting for four or five grown-up infants. So it just wasn't on my radar to go. And then I got a call from a publicist that I knew. And she said, um, we're going to have some special guests tonight backstage. And I need a picture uh, for Rolling Stone magazine. So if you come out and shoot a roll of film backstage and give it to me to take, put on the plane to New York, I'll give you a pass to shoot the whole show which was very rare at the time. I think the only band that let you shoot the whole show was The Grateful Dead, oh, Michael Stanley, of course. Um, so I said, yeah, shoot a whole Bowie show, I'm there. So I get there, and it turns out to be um, Bono and Adam Clayton. And so I shot a whole bunch of shows of them, uh, photos of them backstage, and... Adam and, Bo and Bowie were just so affable and friendly and you know, funny. And Bono was friendly, but he was like, I'm Bono. I'm on Earth to save the world, you know? <laughs> Bono, the, the great hero. And, and he had the long, the long, long hair. I saw one of your photos, right? Like, that's yeah. long, long yeah. hair Bono, right? Yeah, and he, yeah, he was, he was going to save the world. So the, the other two were just joking around. And then I shot the whole show, and at that point, Bowie, he was doing much more sophisticated. He was in a suit, and you know, his hair slicked back, and he was much more upscale and elegant. But uh, when Bono came on stage, I got great photos of them together, and of course, I'm the only person in the world who has photos of that happening, because that was the only time they were ever on stage together, and I was the only photographer that shot the whole show, so... I don't have that photo with me, no. Um, but yeah, it's really special to me because U2 is actually my favorite band. So when I make fun of Bono, it's loving fun. <laughs> because he did save the world, right? <laughs> well, he tries, which is more than you can say for like Ted Nugent. Uh, we, we talked about... <laughs> I want to leave time for uh, Q&A once we wrap this up. So anybody who has any questions, we're going to have some people walk around with microphones for these guys. Um, but before we get to that, we, we talked about the uh, outside tour with Nine Inch Nails. I wanted to ask you, Thomas, because you know, you've covered, you've written about Nine Inch Nails events that have happened here in Cleveland and such. What was it about Trent and David that sort of made, they connected? They were like kindred spirits. What do you think it was about those two that, that made them connect so well? It seems like David Bowie always had this knack for finding the right collaborator at the right time to move him into his next phase. So he, he was very conscious about his networking, you know, and he would steal ideas. I mean, we use it when, in our band when we do, we do a Bowie song and we say, you know, he was influenced, and then we'll do a Velvet Underground song and say, you know, you know, and so Bowie would quote, I think, Picasso, who said, you know, good artists borrow, great artists steal. And, you know, Bowie would steal outright. You know, there's a story of him going over to Mick Jagger's house one night, and he's showing uh, some sketches by this uh, Dutch artist, Guy Peelart, who ended up doing the cover of, you know, the album It's Only Rock and Roll with the big staircase and that kind of painterly style. And Bowie's fascinated by this. And the next day, he calls up Guy Peelart, hires him, and he says, we're in a hurry because we got to beat. And he, he ends up doing... The Diamond Dogs fold out. That's Guy Peel art. Came out like a month before. It's only rock and roll. 
totally pissing off Mick Jagger, but he would steal ideas right before your eyes. And so he knew who to collaborate with and who he needed to stimulate him. And he was very much, you know, Bowie was ahead of the curve in the 60s, so far ahead that nobody knew what the fuck he was doing, right? And he couldn't catch on, possibly, because he was just way out there. You know, uh, RCA had to pull that Diamond Dogs cover. The first and one removed had the, the genitalia, yeah, yeah. right. If you have one of those, I'd love to buy it off of you because the, the, the originals are rare. I know somebody that has one. I'd love to see it. Uh, I'd love to touch it, actually. Thomas, before I say this question, I want to ask you, did you get to go to Bowie's last tour in 2004? I know he played CSU. Did you go to that show? I did, yeah. That was, that you were was there a, too, Billy? That was a triumph. I mean, that, yeah. that was the greatest hits. When he, he finally, you know, he never wanted to do greatest hits. He, he came out famously and said, I'm not going to do them anymore. Uh, in the 90s, he, he had these, like, call in and vote, and I'll do one or two. Uh, but he was really didn't want to be weighed down by Ziggy especially because, you know, he was constantly getting requests. So he would move on, like artists do, and into their next phase. But by the end of his career, he understood what he meant to the culture. He had enough people finally, and his musicians, saying, we all love these songs. You've got to. And so he finally put together a show that was, was, the, was an overview of his career. And it was triumphant. It was well organized, well done. He was in great spirits. Mm -hmm. it, it was, you know, I went thinking I could get a press pass for it because we were doing Cool Cleveland at the time. And, you know, I, I didn't have all the pull that I have now. <laughs> <laughs> And so I'm standing, I remember out there thinking, well, worst case, I could buy a ticket. And I'm on the phone, and everyone's passing me up, buying tickets. And they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm, I'm going to get the publicist to give me a pass. You know, I'm a, I'm a... So I ended up buying a fucking ticket. I went in by myself, sitting there alone. It was one of the few concerts. I mean, you guys go to concerts alone? It's rare, isn't it? No. no. Oh, I'm sorry. I <laughs> You don't is get to bring a guest into the front row to take photos? You is it the Wallstein Center? Right. Yeah. yeah. I was there. Yeah. It, 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 it was magical. Was that like a full circle moment for you guys? Because, you know, yeah. for Anastasia and Billy, I mean, you, you were at the first show. Yeah. This winds up being his last show and, and in Cleveland. I, Other than the, uh, the first show, the music hall show, this, this show was the best show I'd ever seen of him. Because he was back into that three-chord rock and roll thing, and, and every song was... was uh, had a that drone that beat to it. It was yeah. just he he lit the 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 state the what do you call that a state arena up, yep. lit it up. It was great. If you guys so we're gonna throw questions out there. If somebody has a question, raise your hand. We got some mic wranglers out there who will come to you. Okay. Um, I <clears throat> remember, and you've talked about all the different machinations and the way he evolved. And you said restraint and creativity. For me, I don't know if it was station to station or sound and vision, because I moved from Cleveland to LA in 73. But I saw a concert with Bowie where he did nothing but white light. And the only color that whole concert was Warzawa. And it was colored spotlights on the audience with all of the techno by that time that was part of every rock concert, 
that was brilliant. That was a thin white dupe, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Were any of you with that? And what kind of yeah. effect did that have in Cleveland at that time? Yeah, for sure. And Bowie was very influential. He was very well read. We don't under, you know, realize that he, he started as a musician. He was 15. So he didn't get to go to college. But he, he read so many books. Um, when he go, went to do the film The Man Who Fell to Earth, and he was going to be in the desert for, I think, two months. He took a box of books. They were on display at the Bowie Is exhibition. Anybody get to see that in New York, Chicago? And you see the trunk. He took 700 books with him for a two months. You know, he read, and he was very influenced by German expressionist film at the time. Black and white, high contrast. He was always doing the mime. He'd always pull it out and slip it in, and everybody'd be like, "Oh, knock it off," you know. But, uh, but for that show especially, it was a very filmic uh, influences that he was going for, and and it worked, you know. And he would rearrange all his music for the new theme, just like he did for Diamond Dogs with that band, just like he did at the end with the band he had there. He would rearrange the music to fit his latest incarnation. Right, got another question over here. Sure, go ahead. Actually, uh, it's a comment. Uh, I was at the uh, September 22nd show, um, second row. I, I still haven't found, found them today, mm -hmm. my two uh, ticket stubs for the 22nd of September and the 26th of November wow. was the second show. Awesome. And what the, the, that concert, the 22nd, was second row, and they, they had a orchestra pit in front of the stage. And so you were, from me to you, behind the stage, even if you were in the first or second row. And then the, the next concert at Public Auditorium, I was in the front row, and Mick Ronson was sitting on a stool right in front of me. But uh, something Jane Scott missed was that when the show started, we didn't really know what David Bowie looked like, uh, most of us. Uh, the Hunky Dory didn't have a very good drawing of him. And that's actually, I think, what they had a drawing. And uh, Ziggy Stardust, of course, was a drawing too. Um, so when the show started, there was nothing but strobe lights. And you, it was bizarre because you're like, what the heck am I seeing here? You know, it's like boom, 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 boom. And these these dudes come out and they had, just to give you guys a, a visual, they had eight-inch platform heels with these weird, you know, weird, like, real skin-tight stuff. And we're all, all the guys I'm there with, we're all working class, you know, tradesmen or whatever, you know. <laughs> It's like, hey, but the bottom line was, and something you guys kind of missed, I was hoping you would touch on it, was we were coming out of the Vietnam War, and we were sick of the, the, the Woodstock thing. Okay, that's our, still our favorite music. But we, we were, it was time to evolve into something else. And, and, you know, coming out of Vietnam, we're trying to leave that baggage behind. Here comes glam, you know. Of course, that's not really manly, but it had a good beat, like one of you guys was saying. And it, it, I get it, you know, and, and that's what we went for. And uh, uh, most of these people in this audience won't remember this. I'm 67 years old. And 
MMS wouldn't advertise U.S. Army commercials. And that's how adamant we were against Vietnam. And most people don't remember any of that. But uh, yeah, Bowie started, like, I was looking through all these tickets today, all these ticket stubs, hundreds of them from 73, 70, 72, 73, 74, 75. Uh, Mott the Hoople was like in December. So right after Bowie showed up, guess what? Mott the Hoople shows up. And, you know, of course, uh, Roxy Music. And those dudes had, they had some good, they had some good beat. You know, I don't, I don't care what they were. If they were gay, I don't care. They had good music, you know? But one more thing that all the old timers, this one's for Billy, because Billy might remember this. My, my wife here, we've been together since 1971. I'm sorry, and I, I didn't mean to. Didn't. I'm going to say something you might remember, because <laughs> um, I can't hear you. I don't have real good hearing. But you remember a guy on Sunday night, uh, Archie Rothman's time machine. <laughs> you, that's going back before you? I take it you remember Anastasia? Or after me. Oh, well, that would have been 73. 73. But anyways, uh, you, at, the end of, at the end of Bowie's concert in 72 and September 22nd, he passed out black and white photographs. He was tossing them to everybody and anybody. There was thousands of them, right? So I took one home, and uh, a couple days later, I, I'm looking for it, and I, my dad goes, yeah, I threw that thing out. What the hell do you want that for? He's old WW Tour. He, you know, he's... Thought this guy was, you know, funny or something, but <laughs> so the black and white picture's gone. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> we have a we have a question over here. Uh, yeah, my question's for oh. Billy. Sorry. Um, what's your number? Oh. I have a, I'm asking. Oh. I'm asking for a friend. Wow. <laughs> Well, my number is 6345789. You can call me up and have a date. And you guys don't know that song? You can call me up and have a date. There you go. Do we have any more questions? Okay, we got one. I have one. Actually, I have a question for Billy Bass. I used to listen to you on a Wixie show. In the late 60s, you, you, somehow you landed a spot between like 9 and 11 o'clock on Sunday nights. Six, okay. But you used to play all this San Franciscan music and stuff. How in the world did you ever land, score that spot? I mean, there were all white DJs on that show, you know? I was at WMMS before WMMS became WMMS. It was WHKFM, and it was an underground show. Understood. And Martin uh, Perlick, I remember him. Yeah, Martin Perlick and I, and David Bo or uh, David Spiro. No, David Spiro wasn't with me then. I don't think. But anyway, uh, Norm, we we got real. I don't know. People talked about us, and Norman Wayne, the owner of Wixie 1260, bravely hired me to uh, be a DJ on Wixie. And when I say bravely, I mean bravely, because I, I, don't, I, I don't think there was any other black DJ in the, you know, doing top 40 radio anywhere. 
But I said, well, I'll come under one condition that I can play my own songs. And he said, no, that can't happen, not on a top 40 radio station. But we'll give you a Sunday night show, and then you can do, you can do your own thing. So that was uh, Billy Bass and Friends on a Sunday night, 6 to 10. Was I right about that? 6 to 10 on Wixie 1260. That was amazing. Thank you. Hey, she had a listener here. <laughs> oh, I did. I sat in my little dining nook and wrote and had the radio on. And I would listen every week. And I think I wrote, sometimes wrote down all the things you played, too. I could probably find those. Okay. Got a question over here? This is uh, for Billy as well. I'm, I'm a little bit younger, but I assume since you managed David and, you know, a lot of the success, or at least early, was due to you. Does, do you have a favorite story or just a personal um, story that you can share? About David? Yeah. Uh, well, it was mentioned that he, uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, had a, a drug problem. And when I was on that management team, he fired the manager, Mike Littman, who was the real manager. I was just on the team, and asked me to manage him. David did. And I thought about it and thought about it, and then I said, this guy is going to be dead in about two months. I don't think I should take this job. Wow. I mean, he was so so out there with, with uh, cocaine that it, I, I didn't think he was going to make it. So... That's my personal story with him, but but I, I hate to I hate to even put that out there because he recovered obviously and became a great guy and a great you know great human being. Um, but what he did for me personally, I don't think I would have had the career in the music business that I had if it were not for David Bowie's music. Those those two albums, Hunky Dory and, Z and Ziggy Stardust, actually set me, you know, it got me to New York and got me to L.A. and got me with Blondie and Pat Benatar and Huey Lewis in the News and uh, Luther Vandross and, uh, and one of my favorites, the Cleveland's own Bobby Womack. You know, I got, got to work with, uh, with a lot of great people thanks to David Bowie. Troy, how about if we have the last question right over here? Last question, fire away. Did anyone go see The Tin Machine? I saw them play at the Agora, 1991, I think. No comment about that? <laughs> I wasn't terribly impressed. Um, I, it maybe just didn't uh, float my boat at the time. It was kind of a weird transition for me, taste-wise, personally. I'm trying to shed the hairband era and going into the really extreme music of the 90s that I was into, uh, everything from death metal to math rock, um, they just sounded like a kind of a noisy, unfocused rock band to me. I didn't really get the point. You don't seem easily impressed. I loved industrial music, but they weren't really that. I mean, I loved ministry and KMFDM and bands like that, but they weren't even really that. They were just sort of a compromise. Um, before we before we wrap it up, I'm gonna let Tom Tom's do his thing here. The lunch box is open, so something's got to be happening. Yeah, I, um, 
This uh, is for Billy. It's, uh, I don't know if you know this series, 33 and a third. This one's on um, Diamond Dogs, which, um, and I've got it marked there for um, the song Sweet Thing, Candidate Sweet Thing Reprise. I don't know if this is anyone's favorite. A lot of people call this his you know, best uh, song that he's done. He himself uh, spoke highly of it. So anyways, I don't know if you have that, no, but don't. it's uh, very uh, thoughtful. Um, Thank you very much. I wanted to offer this one to Troy, uh, my personal copy of the same uh, review for the album Low, uh, complete with all of my tags and marks and notes, okay? In case you ever it's need a to lot here, do man. a story. Uh, it's taking me back to my book report days. Exactly. Um, and this one, it's getting harder with Anastasia because she just knows so much, but there's this one, um, Inspirational Works, from a rock legend, Pocket Bowie Wisdom. Um, and you'll find some, uh, they're all just quotes of his. But, uh, and uh, I want to thank Anastasia personally. She's our editor at Cool Cleveland, has been for many years, photographer, fabulous, fabulous. Um, I want to thank Troy for hosting these things and for reaching out. Um, I turned him down at first because I thought it was January 9th and we had just done these shows six seven eight i'm like are you crazy no he's like dude read the email it's february <laughs> and i just have to tip the hat to um not not just the legend but he, i don't even know if you understand billy how how much you've done for this city i mean there's a monument on the lake over here that's probably there as much because of you and what you did as what alan freed did and i know you honor him okay <laughs> Very nice of you to say that. Thank you very much. But your work through Wixie, through WMMS, through playing what you wanted to play, through believing in it, through creating this cult, uh, that is embedded in Cleveland culture. We're always the kind of people who don't really give a fuck about what other people think, okay? That's the only way you get by here, by the way. And you gave us that. You said, we're going to all listen to this music together. Appreciate and we're going to show up much. at a show, and we're going to all dress in our platform boots. It's just going to be us. <laughs> and it's because of you, brother. So thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you very you much. That. Thank you. And thank all you guys. That was very nice of you. I really appreciate the questions. Thank you very much. I want to let everybody know. Um, obviously, I want to thank these guys for coming out and being part of this panel. Uh, I want to thank you guys for coming out. It's been a great night. Um, you can check out the podcast. It'll be uploaded tomorrow on cleveland.com. And if you want to search CLE Rocks, it'll be on all major podcasting platforms. Also, we ha our next event is March 9th, and the subject is the World Series of Rock. Pretty awesome panel for that, including the Belkins, uh, John Gorman, and uh, as Billy mentioned earlier in the podcast, Denny Sanders. So that one will be fun. Thank you so much. Everybody have a great night. And thanks to Mike at the Music Box. Thanks for listening to CLE Rocks. If you're in the Cleveland area, please join us on March 9th at the Music Box Supper Club for our next live podcast event focused on the World Series of Rock, Cleveland's ultimate stadium concert series in the 1970s.